Kia ora tātou, uh, kua tai mai uh, ki tēnei wahi ki te kōrero o ngā kaupapa. Uh, ka nui uh, te koa mō tō koutou kainako ki te hairu mai, ki te whakarongo mai o ngā kōrero e pā nā uh, ki tēnei pātaka toi. Nā mihi nui ki a koutou katoa. Uh, ko Thomason aho, and it's my great pleasure to be here with you this evening. Thank you very much for coming out on a cold night for this discussion with Tina, Gwyn and Greg. It's really nice to be here to tease out some ideas around art and writing, the relationship between the two, the tensions between the two, and to use the, the Legacies Reader as a kind of springboard for that discussion. I'm going to introduce our panellists and then just provide like a little bit of context around the Legacies Reader and how we came to be here discussing these topics tonight. Just to my left, we have Tina Makariti, who needs a little introduction, but she is a writer of novels, short fiction, and creative non-fiction uh, that considers questions around cultural identity, history, prejudice, and coloniality in Aotearoa. She has a strong interest in writing that explores unknowability and the uncanny, and, and she's published two novels, and in 2022, her essay, Lampectomy, won the Landfall Essay Prize. So, Namahi Tina, thank you so much for being here. Uh, Gwyneth Porter has flown all the way up from Otutahi this evening, so she's come from the farthest away, so thanks so much for coming, Gwyneth, up for the day. Gwyneth is a writer and editor from Otutahi who has been writing in essays since the mid-1990s. Her practice has involved persistent experimentation with forms, methodologies, and subject positions. Auto-theory, fictocriticism, and dialogue are some of the forms that it takes on. And she has yeah, a huge amount of experience in art writing, editing, and book development with artists. And on the end of our panel today, we've got Greg Kahn, who is a poet, essayist, and arts writer who has published two poetry collections. His first book, This Paper Boat, was published by AUP in 2016. He has been shortlisted for the Kathleen Grattan Poetry Prize in 2013. Uh, this was shortlisted, sorry, for the Kathleen Grattan Poetry Prize in 2013 and for the Best Poetry category in the 2017 Ockham New Zealand Book Awards. And Greg's actually just been up at the Ockham's last this week, just been as a judge for the poetry category, in the, which is really awesome. And his second book of poetry, Under Glass, was published also by AUP in 2019. So tonight we're going to have kōrero with, with the writers um, with several questions for them both and then we'll have a kind of open panel discussion. And so to provide some context about the discussion, I was saying before it's a little bit of a Russian doll type situation of interesting connections and projects that have led, led to other projects. Last year, Circuit Artist Moving Image commissioned a series of new works by moving image artists for the cinema, um, and they call this the Artist Cinema Commissions. Um, and every year, they invite a curator to sort of set up a kind of curatorial prompt for the artists, and then they produce a series of works. And the Legacies series, uh, collection of works, rather, is now being exhibited downstairs at the Adamak Gallery, and it previously opened at Artspace Aotearoa up in Tamaki Makoto. And alongside the Legacies Commissions, I was really lucky to be working at Circuit um, at the time and uh, as, a, as a writer in residence. And Mark, um, the director of Circuit, invited me to produce a book to sit, or a catalogue rather, to sit alongside the Legacies works. So this was a really nice project to think about the relationship of writing to art and the intersection of the two disciplines and also to kind of think about the production of a catalogue that would travel with the works across different sites internationally and also is made available online. So thinking about all these kind of different contexts where the writing um, would be read. So in the, in the book, in the catalogue, we have this really great curatorial essay by May um, Adidol Ngawanij, the curator, um, which takes on this kind of personal essay uh, approach to her thinking about the, the curation of the works and her caught it all with the artists. Then there's an essay by Huni Mancini, a writer based in Auckland, who really picked up a lot of the threads around the transmission of knowledge. Whakapapa, her, um, she works in archives and she really dug into this idea of archival knowledge and, and the keeping of stories in her family. And then we were also really lucky, Tina was very generous to let us republish Black Milk, Tina's short story, 
that she wrote in response to a photograph by Fiona Paddington in 2016. And the story um, just really picked up on a lot of the threads and um, ideas that May was working with the artists on for the Legacies Commissions. And it was just felt this really nice sort of synchronicity to republish that to republish that story. And yeah, and it kind of throws up all these interesting ideas about taking also writing from into different contexts and into into discussions with different works over time. So that is the the story of, of legacies and, and the catalogue and how we sort of come to be here having this discussion this evening. And it's great to have Gwen and, and Greg's perspective as writers who have also worked sort of alongside and with and through artists um, in the visual arts. What we might do to kick off is Tina's going to read us a little excerpt from Black Milk so we can all just kind of sit back for sort of six or seven minutes and enjoy uh, Tina's reading. And then Tina and I will have a, a bit of a discussion about the story. Yeah. Kia ora, Thomason. Tēnā koutou katoa. Yeah, it was also, you know, very generous of you guys to reprint the story. It's really a lovely, lovely thing when you write something and it keeps having a life beyond the moment that you wrote it. So, like, really delightful um, to actually have someone um, email me in 2022, (laughs) which is six years after the story was... I think this came out in 2017, yeah, so, um, but six years after the story actually was originally um, made to to say, hey, let's print it again, and, and, and now I get to talk about it or read it. So yeah. thank you um, for that, and thanks to everyone for coming. Um, the story is called Black Milk. I'll talk about this in a bit, I guess, when the time is right. But, um, yeah, as Thomason was saying, it's written in response to... Um, an artwork by Fiona Partington, which we printed in this book too. So um, I don't know. <laughs> it's a very small reprint, so I don't know if you guys can see that. Um, and maybe, maybe it'll become clear. But that was a um, exhibition of Fiona Partington's work. What is? I've got art people all around me. What is the proper name when you have an artist's whole? survey, something like that. Yeah, like all of her works up to that point and that was in, I guess it must have been 2015 maybe when that happened because I was asked by Claire maybe to mm-hmm. respond to that um, and there were a group of us that responded in some way and there were all these different stages of Fiona's work and so I responded to the series of photos um, that were of, of birds and they were taken in museums, the, the photos. But um, I don't know if you can see there, it, it suggested to me, I'll stop talking there, I'll read the story, and then we can talk about what it suggested to me. <laughs> um, so the first, I'm gonna jump to the middle, but the first line of the story is, the bird woman came into the world while no one was watching. There was a reason no one had been watching, the bird woman learnt, even though there were sentries on every hill. They were too busy watching each other in their firearms, too busy grappling with the ways of war, which, no matter how many times they went through it, could not be made intelligible. She knew they noticed her strangeness, but no one had the energy to concern themselves about it. Before now, she had only known them as the clumsy ones who took the small and fluttering bodies of her kin for food and feathers, even beaks and talons. And though it had sorrowed her, she knew there was a balance to it. The people called their greetings and gave their thanks, but they hunted. It was an old deal made right at the beginning. Her line would be sacrificed to theirs. But the gods gave them two gifts to cope with the hurt, abundance and a lack of other predators. She got used to their ways. She helped. There were people to organize and mouths to feed. She didn't mind rolling up her sleeves, and time passed, and the wars ended, but then even more people were hungry, and she didn't know if the old ones had been right after all. Could she really do anything to help? Her sleeves remained rolled up, and she saw everything that had caused her family to send her to the ground, how they struggled, these land walkers, her upright, naked friends, how they hurt themselves like little children who had not yet learnt how to hold a knife safely or run without tripping. 
She had been so busy with the people and their wars that she didn't notice until it was done. They, they never took her hunting. They'd seen her disapproval and didn't want to anger her. But one day they emerged from the forest with empty hands, nothing to offer their children. It's the rats, a man said. It might be the cats. Eloise nodded towards the friendly feral at her feet. It's the white man. This was an old koro who, who was known to take, shake his stick and rant about the changing world. They take them for their museums, put them under glass to stare at. They trade in them, take them by the hundreds. No one wanted to hear that part. No one wanted to believe it. But she heard. It doesn't matter what happened to them now. There's none left to take. Haven't seen a huia since I was a boy. Could it be that she'd been gone so long? Could it be that she hadn't noticed the voices of her elders fading? Would she be stuck in this place with these fleshy fools forever? No, they weren't ready. How could they understand the gifts of her kind when they couldn't even restrain themselves or others? All that killing. So she left, just as swiftly as she'd come. She wandered between villages, her anger turned inwards, devoured by her grief. She forgot herself. It was a dark place she got into. She no longer held her head high, no longer dreamed of the future. Despair sat on her shoulders where her wings should have been. Darkness consumed her, the quivering lip of a dying abalone, grease in the barrel of a gun. Sometimes she did not see or hear any birds for weeks. Then, one day, she saw him, his great figure hunched so that he looked like one of hers, hair on his head shimmering in the way of the tui. When he moved, she thought she heard the whispered scrape of feather against feather. He came slowly, in a considered fashion, was heavy-limbed, but when he turned a certain way, it was enough. Lady, he said, and bowed. He was a dark-feathered mountain. He was the shape of her nights. He was ink spilt in a pool of oil, volcanic rock, onyx eyes. The black enveloped them. There had been so many long days. She had seen so many things she didn't want to see. Lady, he said, and she liked the way the word curved around her and gave her a place to rest. They had many children. She had no time to remember herself then. Mother, the children would call, we're hungry. Mother, we're cold. Help us. Their mouths open with constant needs and demands. She was kept busy from the start of the day to the end. They worked hard together to grow the children. It was easier for her to forget the guilt, ache and shame of where she had come from, how she had let it get so bad, how she didn't help her people. Better to let her children grow up in her husband's world without the burden of her knowledge. She settled on this as the right path, though her son, husband would sometimes look sidelong at her as if considering some puzzle he couldn't figure. Wife, sometimes you seem very far away, he said one day. I'm here, husband. Look at me. I am always here. But he was not convinced. Even in a marriage, there is only so much you can hide or share. You can tell me about it if you wish, he said. Sometimes I miss my family and then I think of the children. That had been her answer, focus on the children. It was difficult then when one by one, the children began to lose their way. Kia ora. That's so nice to hear you read that out loud. Um, I think you were just about to touch on it, but um, I wondered if you could just talk about yeah, the process of um, the commission of the story and um, yeah, your first thoughts when you saw um, this work by Fiona Paddington. Yeah, um, well, it's a really, really hard thing to do, to actually write. In I found it really difficult to write in response to artworks mm. because they're already their complete thing and they're not... You know, they don't need my words. <laughs> they, they already, 
suggest story in a really full way or not story, something beyond story or, or mm. gra greater than. And I guess that's what art is um, to me is, you know, greater than my understanding. And, and so putting something into words, words seem, even though it's an art form, my art form is words, it, it's not a natural fit. So I walked into this exhibition and like I say, there were, there were all of Fiona's works through different stages. And you, you know, some of them were human and some of them were animal and some of them were flowers um, and flowers, still lives. Um, and uh, so it took me a long time. And then there was just the series of black and white bird figures and yeah, what what they suggested to me were, were human figures. So the one that's in there of the tui, you heard I actually just end up describing just, it looks like a man turned away, very much the, the shoulders of a man. Um, and, and so I just started with the bird woman, actually I've forgotten my own first line, came into the world when no one was watching and then it just goes from there. So I didn't know what it was going to be. Um, and it's interesting to me how the, just starting from that place then begins to suggest a whole lot of things, like birds that are photographed in a museum. You know, you can't help but think about death and the loss of, of um, those, those beings. Um, and... Um, yeah, just the the evocative nature of the image. So the, the I guess the place I ended up going, which is very much derived from the artwork, is how to talk about... Sorry about the feedback. Is it better if I move it down a bit? Andy's doing something with it. Um, I do have a loud voice. Um, <laughs> is um, the black because to me it was like such an in, incredible, they're just black and white photos, but there's so much, um, so many levels and layers and so, so much that's beautiful just about the black yes. of those images. Um, so then I think my personal favorite part of that story is when I was trying to find ways, and that's where it's experimental for me, how do I talk about this black and, and so you might have heard part of that in the part I read as well about just like trying to find words for this, whatever this is. And so, and then I um, read it at the gallery and then I had this story. So I put it into the Commonwealth Short Story Award and it got the Pacific, yeah. it won the Pacific region, which was like huge and really surprising. Um, because it's a strange story. Like, I had no idea really what it was about. I think I'm only just beginning to understand what it's about now. Um, but, um, and, and when the judge talked to me, he said there was, like, definitely a lot of debate about it. So yeah. it's not like it was like, yeah, this is the winner. This is the best story ever. It was like, oh, it's really strange, but it's doing maybe something new, certainly something new for me anyway. Hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. The photograph, um, the figure is sort of, turned away and if you see them as the protagonist in the story it's almost like you're letting the story letting them sort of turn towards the camera almost or have their story told but yeah I find every time I read it um, there's something new that comes out to me or some new thread that I can follow um, in it it's sort of it's the gift that keeps giving yeah, yeah I mean it's the best thing when you've made something that you don't even understand and you keep like every time you encounter it so Oh, yeah, I, can't, I think I, I understand that afresh. Yeah. yeah. And did you do much um, wider research about Fiona Paddington's work, or did you um, just go and experience it visually in the space in the gallery and yeah. take that as well, your first step? There's some great books. I actually already had the f an earlier book. Is The Pressure of Sunlight Falling? Do you know that? You might know this. Um, it was already a, yeah, so I was always I was already a fan. Yes, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so I just knew, you know, where the photos had been taken and stuff just from the exhibition information. But yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. I yeah, I was already a fan, so <laughs> I don't know what else. To... 
more to say. And did the story have much, I was wondering about your short story writing or your writing afterwards, did it have much impact, do you think, the experience of working with the gallery and, that, and, and responding to the artist and your writing following? Uh, um, oh, well, of course, it, so it led to that. I mean, I think it's always good to be put in a new place and be, do something challenging and new. Like, I really, th I tried to do... Um, Okay, writers in the audience, what do you call it when you respond to an artwork? Chris, what's it called? Ekphrasis. Thank you, Greg, as well. I should have asked you. <laughs> Sorry, Chris. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, I should know that word, but um, I tried to do ekphrasis before and just failed miserably. So, yeah, to be... Yeah, to be pushed to do something and you know that you've got a performance coming up so you've actually got to do it like you can't you've got to come up with something so yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, I think that's always good to have that pressure and always good to have like um, a task and also one that you wouldn't give yourself and then um, and then like I say the story has a life like maybe not the relationship with the gallery so much but when so Witsi Ihimaira um, I was very um lucky that he kind of approached me and asked for, if I wanted to do an anthology with him and uh, working together I was like um, let's you know let's put some images into this because he'd written about um, the, the pursuit of Venus. Oh yeah, Lisa Rehana. Lisa Rehana, yeah. thank you. <laughs> um, and and so there were all of these interactions with art and another nice image we have in here is Patti Ty Tyrell's um, work which is part of the mm. um, Legacies exhibition as well. Um, so, and, and then, I mean, if we're talking about the ongoing conversation, we have artworks in here because we're also talking about how story or how we express ourselves is also through um, a visual language, whether that's the written word or images or and also, of course, sounds as well. Mm. And especially because this was a Māori and Pacifica um, anthology, just kind of having that conversation about how um, we tell our stories in all these different ways, they're not necessarily with divisions between them. So right. um, I think we were kind of trying to put all of these things in the same level's not the right word, but putting them beside each other to say these are all doing a similar thing. These are all telling us stories about ourselves. Yeah, and how did you go about selecting the artists for the book, for the page works in the book? That was, uh, Witty left that up to me, so right. <laughs> I actually like pretty much went, I like this. Yeah. <laughs> and um, I have to admit that my, my, um, relationship with art isn't as academic as my relationship with words so I pretty much am like I love what this is doing so yeah. and but I do love stuff that has a, a friction to it so you know I'd walked into a South Auckland gallery and seen Putty's work for the first time um I already was a fan of Fiona um yeah, yeah um and I'm thinking of you know I don't know we wanted diversity within what we do so um, Robert Yonke is an old um, teacher of mine, and but he's always doing something so incredible. And his the stuff we've got in here is is the stuff that he did with mirrors and um, neon words, and it's all um, from it's I don't know it speaks to me so clearly, but I guess that's because I know him so well. Yuki Kihara, it's always incredible work. Um, and who was the other? Uh, Rosanna Raymond. Um, and oh, Shane Hansen's I Am Mixed Media, which is just kind of like a funny pop art kind of Chinese Māori image. Um, yeah. And then we had Putty perform at the oh. launch, which was just incredible. Like, um, I'm always, I always want to have people who are visually and um, orally more exciting than me at my launches. Yeah. <laughs> it was just like, it was, yeah. Couldn't ask for anything better, really. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. Thanks, Tina. I thought, um, Gwyneth, I might weave you into the conversation now. Um, I, you've written 
about art in many different type and forms and I've been having a really wonderful time preparing for this session, reading all your work um, on your website and um, you, you write in sort of ficto-criticism forms and in longer essays and also kind of shorter uh, pieces and, 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 and things that are kind of like almost like a dialogue as well. And I just wondered about um, how you kind of decide the form of a piece of writing in response to a, an artwork or in collaboration with an artist, how the form takes shape. Ooh, um, I think that it... Um, it kind of rises up out of um, the experience of the work. I mean, that is probably quite obvious um, to you all. Um, but what I tend to like to do is um, spend as much time as I can with the work and possibly with the person who made it, um, ideally, um, and see what, that it, what it suggests, what the form of the work suggests to... Um, take over to a possible form of writing um, and then to start uh, to start gathering words writing over a period of time ideally quite a long time <laughs> I like it I like it when I get given quite a long time to sometimes I don't sometimes it's like can you do it for next week or something and I'm like I don't know <laughs> um, uh, but um, I tend to gather material and um, I always think of them as forms of essays. I don't even really think I use that word. Right. Um, there's lots of ways people talk about forms of writing now that they all have names. <laughs> I started writing in the, in the 90s and people didn't call it stuff. It was just, you know, you, I was doing writing. It didn't, you know, you didn't, you didn't have a, a genre for it. So which was kind of great because it just meant I could kind of give myself a whole lot of license, which I didn't even realise I was doing. Um, but then I would say, say I might gather material together um, and just try and see what, I don't know, suspend some kind of judgement about it to see what it actually looks like written down and to see whether I actually think it's interesting or not. And then if, given that's an essay form, there's quite a lot of scope in that to um, draw different things together from different registers, if you like, um, which I really enjoy. It sort of um, it keeps the subject sort of a subjective aspect or a subjective method all the time, but um, it allows things to be drawn together. So a kind of constellation starts to happen, I suppose, and the thing kind of you know the thing starts to walk or, <laughs> you know, it becomes a thing. Um, I can't kind of work out what that point is exactly and sometimes there's a lot left out and sometimes there's everything left out and I start again. <laughs> and then sometimes I might do that three times, you know, that's, um, but that's okay, I, you know, don't, I don't expect it to all, um, all be good. Um, but I like to talk to the artist as well. Um, to see what they're connecting with in terms of what I'm, where I went with it. Um, and that's, I think the loveliest thing about it over the years is that opportunity. Someone comes to me and says, you know, would you, would you consider writing about or doing some writing in relation to this work? And I always think that's an incredibly generous and I, I always feel quite, um, you know, kind of, I hope I can, I hope I can come up with something good. <laughs> um, it's, a, it's a sort of an opening and an opportunity done in a really beautiful way where I'm being asked to do something that has its own space. Um, I, I really appreciate that. It's, it's, uh, people have usually asked me to write because they don't tend to want, um, at that point, something which explains their work or inscribes their work. They seem to end up coming to me for some other kind of reading. <laughs> sort of feel like I've become some like weird tarot reader or something. <laughs> but it's, it's, which is kind of, which is pretty great. Um, so I, I tend to not try and sort of say, well, you know, I think the work is about this. Or um, I, I keep myself in there, even if I don't use an I um, form for the writing or a first person form. It's 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 implied that it, there is a, a subject position there. Um, 
So I tend to, just uh, see what happens. I mean, that's what they're sort of asking me to do. Like, where did you go with mm. this work? And yeah. I say, this is where I went. Yeah, I noticed yeah. in um, your writing, there's this really interesting balance between um, digression. So you go, you can see sort of following a train of thought and weaving the thoughts of others and quotes from others in. But then there's also underlying that, this like very clear structure about um, your relationship to the work and um, where you're kind of, um, yeah, where you're kind of heading towards. And I guess it's a question about editing. Like you said, mm. you write and then you might get rid of it all. Mm. Like, does that, does that actually happen? Like you were just like, yeah. it's gone. <laughs> yep. Yeah. Yeah. Because they seem very incisively edited as well. Yeah. Oh, I always surprise people think that, you know, more sees the light of day. I'm a kind of. <laughs> um, yeah, I'd be I'd be lucky if ten percent would come out, but then I, I I just you know I think that's the process of writing it. Just um, yeah, it's an accretive thing. Um, mm. What's it been like? Um, my understanding is that your website with your your writing is quite new, and I wondered what the yeah. process was like of um, bringing together all your work from over your, your over your kind of career and taking a look at it. Super at odd. Yeah, <laughs> I only did it because a friend of mine's really good at. Um, you know, he's a designer I've worked with for a long time, and wanted to do it. Um, writing in the way that I do, a, a lot of stuff sort of it disappears. Um, and it might exist in books, but people don't always have access to them readily. So, um, you know, I might have a student who's asking me, well, you know, could I see that thing? And it just seemed like an easier way to just centralise everything. But uh, um, it was strange going back into different spaces. Like, I mean, it goes back 30 years. I mean, how many versions of my body have I lived through to go back? It's like, oh. Um, but it was really good to see that consistently, even when I was really young, I think what I was most interested in is trying to say what my experience of the work was, as honestly as possible. And then hopefully to encourage other people to value their own experiences of work, so to kind of disturb that. I, I never really wanted an authoritative voice. <laughs> I, I wanted to say, well, this is, this is where I go, and this is what I thought was interesting. Um, there's always that kind of offer of, and what about you? You know, and that's been a lot, a lot of my teaching has informed how I've ended up writing, or even what I do now, you know. Um, it's the development of the subject for everybody, the writer and the reader, that's at stake, so um, I hope that comes out. Mm, yeah, no, absolutely. Um... I also uh, wondered a bit about, you've written a lot about artists who use quite a lot of text in their work, so you wrote this amazing essay about um, an et al installation at the Gavit mm. Brewster, and I wondered about um, yeah, responding to artists or working with artists who themselves are writers in their practice as well, and how that informs what you produce. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, a lot, of, a lot of artists might have visual, you know, there might be a a material or visual um, presentation or work. Um, but a lot of people tend to do it a lot of channels all at once. Like they, they might be very avid readers or researchers in, in, another, in another medium or other mediums or media. Um, so I'm kind of used to working with people who have these really, you know, like, like Fiona's, like vast research practices, which are very idiosyncratic um, and you can really start to geek out pretty quickly with people about like you know what are you doing <laughs> and just trying to find out like what, what are you what are you what are you looking at what are you reading what are you thinking about what are you you know what are your concerns what are, and it, it, it just there's so much there yeah. this and, and then it's important to also know what what is them and what is the work and what is supposed to be seen and what should remain unseen, private. I'm, I'm, I'm more interested in the sort of the ethics of that too. So um, just because I know it all learned, it doesn't mean I should be telling anyone because it's not, it's not mine to tell. But um, artists such as Etel are fascinating to work with and such, um, such nuanced political um, action in the work 
it's um, it's astonishing. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, Greg, I thought we could weave you and you've been sitting down on the end there. <laughs> um, I thought we could have a chat. So um, Greg was involved in this really beautiful publication that the physics room put out. Um, and I felt like there was this little like kinship um, that Gwyneth also um, was editor of as well, which I just found out actually <laughs> just before. So there's all these nice little threads happening um, across the writing and the work. But um, I felt this kinship with it because it actually sort of came out around the same time as the Legacies Reader. And we had almost, it looked more similar online, the orange, but it looks a bit more different now that they're next to each other. But they were both um, lovely little orange books. Um, so Heavy Trees, Arms and Legs was um, produced alongside an exhibition um, of Sorowitz Song Satire's work and Nicola Farquhar at the physics room. Um, and Greg, yeah, I just wondered if you wanted to have a talk about how the publication came about and how your writing in the, pe in the book came about as well. Yeah, so I guess um, I have lots of overlaps with both what Tina and Gwyneth have said. Um, I think one of the main considerations for me was about trying to... Okay, it's going to be hard to talk about this without talking about perhaps like uh, a model of how people perceive art writing at times. I think what I was terrified of was uh, a reductive or narrowing or flattening kind of uh, piece of writing. So rather than having um, a text that would try to sell a version of an encounter or a version of uh, criticism or a version of kind of uh, any kind of representation of the thing, I wanted something that was going to multiply and generate more, even more, more meaning, not, not trying to make it less meaning, more meaning. Um, so it was, that was a, <laughs> one of the words that comes to mind when I think about that work, that piece of writing is, it's very greedy. Um, and what I mean by that is that I really wanted to have quite like a multi-dimensional approach, like a, a kind of diverse set of strategies within the one piece of writing. Mm -hmm. So, for example, the elements of like uh, more anecdotal kind of uh, experiential, like epistolary, almost like I'm describing like my encounter with the work and body at the time, um, but also uh, elements of uh, critical distance more than it is And ultimately, I wanted it to be kind of almost a prismatic, uh, amplifying kind of effect. Yeah, it's hard to. Mm. And so, um, were you involved in the development of the exhibition, or like, where did you step in at, in the process? No, very much not involved at all. And I, I was flown to see the work. I basically had one day to check out the show, and so I stayed in the space for as long as I could. Yeah. Having <laughs> had lots of coffee, as long as I could be, just kind of like, you know, walking around, around sitting down and stuff. Um, and I collected lots of notes from that day. Um, a lot of the notes are present in the text, um, and they constitute a kind of uh, almost aggregated, non-linear block of stuff, and then kind of and uh, cutting through that is a more linear, uh, strange uh, story that I wrote. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you a bit about abstraction and, um, and the writing, because I feel like there's an element of that in your practice, where um, in your poetry as well, where bits I feel like are kind of removed from the text. Forgive me if I'm misreading this. Um, but I wondered if you thought... Um, the visual arts gave writing license to be more abstract. I think for me, um, one thing that's really important for me, I think, uh, in, in how I, I see the encounter with that piece of art is. It's people, I think it, it, it's often called opacity, but I actually think it's an immense space. Mm. And, and for me, what I 
try to preserve is that spaciousness as much as possible. Um, I think that that can be performed or enacted in quite a few ways. Um, whether it's leaning into the radical finitude of what's not there, uh, or the diversity of codes and approaches within the one thing, they're both, I think, ways of trying to preserve and generate richness um, and space uh, out of what might otherwise be considered opaque uh, or opacity. Yeah. Yeah, thank you. Yeah, I feel, I ask you that question as well in relation to um, your project Glass Leaves. So um, Greg is also a, a programmer and he's developed this app whereby you can, forgive me if I'm doing the wrong pricey of this, Greg, but you can um, take an, a section of text and put it into this um, text editor and then kind of use the app to sort of um, pull out, for example, like all the nouns or all the similes or all like a certain type of language from the text. Is that correct, Greg? And um, it's the reason I asked you this question about abstraction, because I feel like there's an element of your practice where you're taking kind of the materiality of the text um, and playing with it um, in a way that um, artists, I think, do um, in different media as well. Yeah. Yeah, so I guess that, that does link up for me because for me, all these encounters, whether with piece of writing, piece of art, like they're these transformational digestive processes. And both the app and I hope, you know, the, the writing tries to enact that or perform that in some to some degree or in, and to encourage it. Um, because for me, an encounter with a piece of work, again, text or not, it doesn't end. It never ends. It, it kind of keeps galloping on, and things keep changing and changing. Um, so I guess I wanted to both, I, I tried to capture that both in, in, uh, in the output, but also in terms of my own process, um, where it's just this yeah, constant translation, constant transformation. Um, almost getting as far away as possible from that notion that like I could have an, an authoritative account. Instead, all you get is like turtles all the way down. And so I guess the contrast is like, if some people, you know, they, I have friends who like, I take to an art gallery and they, they cling to the wall text, like it's a life raft in the ocean. And I don't want my text to be that at all. I want the text to be like another drop, <laughs> like into like an abyss of like, because I think this is something I feel really, really strongly about with art, is that in the encounter with the work, you're there to construct yourself with the work. The work is there to give you space to build into and onto. And to have a piece of writing that basically just flattens that for you is kind of like a terrible form of sacrilege. You know, it's kind of like going to the Eiffel Tower and being like, I'm not gonna, I don't even like the Eiffel Tower, but it's kind of like just going to the, the gift shop and getting a postcard and walking out. And it's like, no, 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 no. You know, I'm gonna take you around as much as I can or encourage you to go, you know, and walk yeah. around. Can I add something? Yeah, go I was just right. thinking, Greg, that um, just in here, there's a piece about Talanoa and it's the same concept, the story a story never ends, it's always a conversation. So, mm. yeah, yeah, I just thought that was a really cool way of thinking about it because it's, you know, it's the same with, I guess, Pacifica forms of storytelling and, yeah. Sort of continuity. The expansiveness of just something not having an ending or a beginning. Yeah. 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 Well, let's open it up um, and we have got some questions that we can all kind of chat about um, across, across us now. Um, and actually, I was thinking about the reader, like just thinking about someone clinging to a wall text as a life raft. And I wondered, um, yeah, your consideration of the reader when you're writing for different contexts um, and who they might be and how much of a consideration they are for you. Anyone can jump <laughs> in now. <laughs> I've found that I think about the reader more now, like as I go on, right. but I think it's... Um, I think it helps me be clear. Um, I'm so I'm so interested in what Greg said, though, because yeah, it all it all make me 
go into galleries differently, I think. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, um, the labels, I love the labels, but I, <laughs> I remember to slow down. Um, but yeah, I, I, yeah, the reader is um, much more important as I go on, but I think it, if you're considering the reader, then it, it probably does give you more. You're always trying to give them enough space, but also, um, yeah, you're interacting with them constantly, and that's that kind of thing where you write something and it's just open-ended how it's going to be read. So you, you kind of weirdly, I think that's a paradoxical thing. You thinking about the reader more means that you've got to be more clear, but you've also got to be more open to what what they come up with mm. when they encounter the work. Yeah. yeah. Did you have any thoughts on that, mm. Gwen? Yeah, I think. Um, I've been thinking more about the, the reader in a different way in the last 10 years or so um, in trying to, well, in, in teaching or, or editing or mentoring work um, to try and encourage people to develop their observational facilities or their, their ability to attend or pay attention or take notice or you know, slow down a little bit <laughs> um, um, and to try and register or fix that experience in, into words, even in a very kind of rudimentary, if not daily, you know, regular kind of practice to, to develop strength in that, even, even if it's just the strength to notice or to, to observe or pay attention, because it seems to be harder and harder to do. Um, so I think that when I've, when I've been writing, I haven't been thinking about a, a particular reader or a general reader, but what it is to be a reader, um, to provide something that's coherent and kind of encourages that, that kind of um, attention. Because I think reading is, a, is so hand in hand with writing, and if taken in a broad sense, uh, you can read anything, you know, it doesn't have to be a text, it can be a person or a situation or a, um, a history or a material object. Um, but when we, when we read, we're in a sense rewriting our present, so we're actually sort of doing a, a writing manoeuvre at the same time. So that developing a practice in reading and writing and just observation and paying attention is really powerful. Mm. And um, so I'm, I'm thinking about the reader in terms of maybe trying to encourage that, just as much of that as possible, because I think we really seriously need that kind of gathering process to maintain, um, to keep a health. It's kind of like the thinking about our first technology as a bag rather than a weapon. <laughs> um, and the kind of, you know, the sort of multiplicity and open-endedness of that. Um, as opposed to the singularity of a kind of a, a contest or a, you know, something singular. So yeah, it's, it's, I'm thinking about the reader in that respect rather than something I'm trying to say in particular. Just more about a practice, I guess. Greg, did you have any reader thoughts down the end there? Uh, sometimes the thing that I think about when making the kind of work that I do is while, you know, like I said before, like while I, like to give lots of space and um, invite the reader to play as much as possible. I think it's also about finding the sweet spot because you do want people to feel held mm. at the same time, and that's really the challenge. Like it's it's trying to find um, it's trying to achieve this like how do you how do you have someone feel held enough that they can go and play? Yeah, yeah, that's a really nice way of putting it. Like giving them enough. Um, sort of props so that they can run run forward, yeah. Um, I had a kind of practical question about kind of like facilitation and I wondered in your experiences um, whether there were other things institutions could do to sort of like encourage the collaboration between writers and artists. Um, Greg, you talked about flying down for the day and just like spending the day in the exhibition. Um, but I was just like, if you were like blue sky it, like what, what would be like an amazing thing to do as a writer um, in collaboration with an art gallery or an artist? Maybe you've already had that experience, Gwen, like one thing stands out for you, I don't know. Uh, um, time. 
Yeah. I, love, I love it when someone says, um, you know, you've got, how much would you, could, would you, could you do something in six months or a year? And it's like, yes, yes, yes I can. But it, it, it's institutions, if an institution is involved that um, are committed to the agency of the artists that are the ones that are most interesting to work with. Yeah. And that, you'd think that would be more of a, a normal thing, but it, it, it doesn't tend to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, if you're actually allowed to do something quite freely with someone who is allowed to work with you quite freely, um, that's a beautiful thing. Mm. There are obviously different forms of writing, uh, especially in the art world, and they all have different functions and serve different functions. Um, but uh, apart from time, permission. Because um, for me, like, I've been very, I feel like I'm very lucky. Um, I've been given a lot of scope and a lot of permission in, in, in some of these projects to kind of go as wild as I want to go. Um, and that I always am very grateful for that. Um, yeah. <laughs> Flexible word lengths. Sorry? Flexible. Flexible word lengths. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, do any of you feel um, any pressure like, or relationship to the art market when you're writing? I wondered about the relationship of the market to art writing and, at the moment and if you had it. Yeah, any thoughts on that, like whether it exerted any pressure on your work or anything like that? Uh, it could, yeah. but um, I think I had a good sense to wriggle out of anything that resembled that yeah. <laughs> quite a long time ago. Um, yeah. Writing can be very useful to, um, to someone's um, position in the market. Yeah. It can be very useful to leverage off further opportunities, and I, I'm, I'm aware of this, so... Um, yeah, it's not, it's not a function I tend to like to perform. And, um, yeah, I think there's plenty of people who can do that if they want to. <laughs> yeah. I'm just aware we're just nearly at time. Maybe we'll have one more question for the group and then we can open it up to any parte from um, the audience. Um, I actually... Forgive me, Gwen. So Gwyneth has written this incredible essay, actually, about 10 years ago about art and its relationship to writing, which is this incredible consideration of the topic, which was very helpful to me when I was preparing. It's older than that. I'm kind of horrified now. What is she going to say? Um, it's really great. You should um, seek it out. Um, but there was a quote from there where you said, all language obscures that, which of, which it, that of which it speaks, um, which is this... Yeah, interesting idea that we've actually all been sort of teasing out, I think, as we've talked in the past hour about, you know, Tina, you said, um, you know, the art, the piece of art is its, is its world in itself and it has its story and it, and it has its sort of finitude. Um, and so to write, I want to use on top of or alongside of or through that, um, you don't want to obscure that. Um, and I just wondered, yeah, to finish, if you had any thoughts about, I mean, I think you've all sort of talked about this already, but ways to write that don't obscure the work with the language, I guess, yeah. Um. I mean, I'm, I'm quite, like, astonished because um, my own ignorance, I, I, didn't, I just didn't imagine that we'd all be on the same page in that kind of sense that, um, yeah, that we're not, representing the art. I, I just hadn't given it any thought, really, but it's obvious now. Um, but, yeah, I think... Just Can you say that quote again? Yeah, so, all language obscures that of which it speaks. I mean, that, I think that applies to everything, and something that's quite hard as a writer is to actually get to that point where you understand <laughs> that you're not representing reality when you talk, you know, when you have a story about characters, or even if you're writing non-fiction, you're, you're making symbols mm. on a page about the thing, you're making a representation of, it's just a different thing, it's mm. a separate thing, and um, so I don't think I've ever really thought about the story that came from that, you know, being asked to respond to an artwork, I've, I don't think I've ever really thought of it as about the artwork or right. related to it in that way, I'm just, I just feel really, really lucky that something that Fiona was doing evoked something for me, but yes. I've never really thought that I was commenting or, yeah, in any way on the work. But I think, yeah, I think that's an amazing quote. Mm. <laughs> 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 
Oh, and I was just laughing because I wrote the entire thing when I had a tiny baby sleeping, so it's probably really mental. No, no. <laughs> <laughs> it makes me triply impressed that you were able to write it at that time. I do think that is like the, the, the gift curse of language, right? Like the giving you what you can get the only way you can get it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah making a reality in the only way you can. Like if you need a new one, you know? Yeah. Sometimes you really need a new one. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, I like that, the gift curse of language. Um, <laughs> Constant. <laughs> Constant negotiation. Constantly played. Mm. Um, well, we might wrap it up there, but um, yeah, we're, we're going to open to questions. If anybody has anything they would like to ask the panel, please feel free. Um, if you ask the question, I'll repeat it so it's, in the, it's recorded in the microphone. Oh, okay. Yeah. So I'm going to repeat that question, but not in the eloquent way that you asked it, because it's a fantastic question. <laughs> the question is, when you experience a work and go to see a show, um, when you're writing about it in the future, do you use your memory to um, think of that experience, or do you go to reproductions to look at and then write about those? Um, sorry, that's a bad pricey. Thank you. Great question. Yeah. Yeah, it's a, it's a really good question. I don't think there's an easy answer to that. Um, I think idealizing any particular form of distance or time from a piece and saying that that is kind of either like greater or lesser fidelity in this or that way, I don't think there's any way to answer that. Um, I think I just, I think in a way I approach the process as simply constrained by these contingencies of life. And whatever the conditions are, I will write to those conditions. Um, I think it's very hard to think about, like, yeah, uh, what form of, um, yeah, reproduction, uh, distance memory is is better than another. I think it's a very, yeah, I don't think there's an answer to that. Did you guys have any thoughts on other questions? I have a question. Who, I, sorry, I just put the So the question is, who is reading art writing? Is it people who are interested in the visual arts, people interested in um, writing and literature, or is it a mixture of both of those groups? Um, I would love to yeah. know. Yeah. Yeah. Can we have data, <laughs> we have data on this? Like, it'd be great marketing data, but yeah. do we know? Could an email list would be great. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know. Um, I'm always surprised where things end up. It's, it's kind of miraculous, actually. Um, how things get read and who buy and then in turn who do they show it to or who shares what with whom and yeah It really has a life of its own once. Yeah. Yeah, I don't mm. know. I, I experience this in a very strange way. Like I feel I feel like the The more space in my in my kind of conception of it the more space you give people the more scary the the, the text can get and it might actually feel like they're being alienated in some way and I find that really difficult to get my head around sometimes because it's like, don't you remember how to play with stuff? Don't you remember how to like spend time with something you don't really know when, like, when you're a child and you're just exploring and you don't know the codes and you just... But somehow, people do forget. 
and what was play becomes dangerous or something, and they feel angry. <laughs> mm. And so I worry about that. I don't have an answer to your question. But yeah. yeah, I don't know if it's a generalization, but that sort of anger at um, being confronted with a text that isn't speaking exactly like the language that you understand, I feel like maybe is increasing as well. Um, you know, with where you're given an algorithmic feed of everything that you understand all the time, if you're confronted by something that is slightly alternate to that. I don't know if this might be a, an overgeneralization, but there's like a kind of, yeah, an affront that people take that I think maybe is becoming more usual, unfortunately. Depends on what yeah. they want, I think. Um, there are some readers who want um, writers to be kind of like a psychoanalyst for the work or something, um, and to tell you what it means. Um, but I, I don't know, I just don't think art needs a shrink. <laughs> um, yeah, so it's sort of, uh, those expectations can come up, um, can be a bit of a barrier, but I don't know, I like to think that I can kind of hopefully charm my way around that. <laughs> like, you know, be interesting enough. Or, as I write poetry, it's kind of a similar question. I'm like, who's reading this? I don't know. <laughs> Ideally. Anybody else? Any parte before we wrap up? the process of building connections between the works and the artists themselves and, and the works and that whole collaborative process. Is that that's the question? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's connected to the reader's question. Like, I think because we don't know who's, who's reading, <laughs> I yeah. think you have to, I mean, I'm kind of real pro, you have to get joy out of doing the thing and, and the process yourself because it's not like you have, you know, people forking out money for it, yeah. or like large amounts of money, I mean, you know, um, we don't, we're not, uh, yeah, for me it's just, it's the thing that you're doing it for, you're, do, you're doing it because you have to do it, because you, you love doing it. Um, I can't imagine doing it for any other reason. Mm. What about you guys? Mm. Yeah, it, it is a joy. Um, uh, um, the if there's any kind of way of connecting people with an experience that's, um, I mean, art presents such a beautiful opportunity to do some really, you know, transformational stuff as a person. Like to just to the, the worlds that get opened are astonishing if you kind of kind of learn how to do it. Like like Greg was saying, it's sort of I think people forget sometimes that you you can just you know come at it yourself and go where you go. And being able to connect people with an experience to, to maybe do that more and to have that permission to um, to play in that way is um, it's a really beautiful thing when it works. So it's a yeah, it's really it's it's really lovely. I think. Yeah, I think if it weren't fun, I wouldn't do it. No. Yeah. I mean, maybe that's a, that's also a privileged position yeah. to have, um. but. Hmm. Hard fun. <laughs> Hard fun. It is hard, and it's kind of like I don't know. Like if you, it's kind of like having a particular relationship with pain and fun. <laughs> right. It's, I mean, there's reward. It's rewarding enough that when you're not having fun, you know mm. you're going to get some at some point. Some reward. I, I don't know. It sometimes feels like a weird like escape act. You know, once the conditions are set up, it, it can feel like it, the, the joy isn't trying to figure out how you get out. <laughs> it's a gift kiss. 
Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> or a compulsion to produce more writing in case we run out, you know. Yeah. That's <laughs> the sort of a horror I have. <laughs> yeah. Anything else from anybody? Cool. Well, if we don't have any other questions. Oh, we do. Have one more. You sort of touched on a creative block. I'm just wondering how each of these sort of deals with creative block. Mm. Yeah, so how do you deal with creative block if you come to a sticking point that you kind of can't get through? What are your um, tactics, your writerly tactics? I, I mean, I, I kind of probably, I just go do something else, to be honest. <laughs> I've, I've, <laughs> no, but, um, oh, well, in two ways. I've usually got more than one thing on the go, so I'll just go and do a different work. Like, I've always got other work to do, and usually if I take my conscious mind off the work, that's where mm. answers come, and, and, like, it works the same as, um, gosh, this has come up, this is the third time this has come up in a couple of weeks, um, like having a shower or walking the dog, or walking is brilliant, um, but just doing something mechanical rather than intellectual, or just doing other intellectual work um, so I, I never really feel blocked because there's just so much work. <laughs> and, you know, like if it's the day job or whatever, that's... I've, I've always found that productive. To, I've hated it, but being forced to go away and do something else has been productive for me, so I kind of try not to... Um, try not to resist being taken off to do other things, even like if you've got kids doing family stuff, yeah. Yeah. Guys, do you get blocked? I, I, yeah, I think it's, it's related to your point, which is I think if you're encountering a block, you're probably not in the right place, mm. whatever that means. Whether that's like psychically or like you are asking yourself the wrong question or, yeah. I think there's something about taking a break because you, you might land back in the right spot to approach what it is you need to do. I think it also depends on the kind of writing that you're doing. Um, obviously, if it's like a very specific, you know, like you're a student writing an essay for a class, that's harder to deal with. But um, if you are writing a creative piece, I feel like you might just be looking, yeah, you might just need to change where you're facing or something. Mm. Sometimes if you're looking at it too hard, you've got to yeah. kind of like mm. trick it into doing something by yeah. looking away. And the other thing, I, the other thing I think as well is that, like, if it's not about perspective, then it might just be about vibes, and you might just need to go and read something that you really love to get hyped yeah. and feel good about yourself, and that's really important too. Yeah, or well, listen to the right kind of music. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Mm. Many ways of approaching it. Yeah. Yeah. Or even stopping when I have a sense that I'm starting to ruin it. Like, yeah, there's a point where I just go, I could just go stop it now and go and do something else for a little bit and come back at it, leave it in a place where I can come back to it without too much of a horror and, you know, um, keep it productive rather than spinning off into something which is not going to be any use to anyone, <laughs> least of all myself. <laughs> um, yeah. Mm. Thank you for your question. Please join me in thanking Tina, Gwyneth and Greg for their amazing, insightful contributions. <laughs>